this morning, uh, or actually last night, we looked at uh, Matthew and Lance specifically spoke about the, the, the need to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. The, the essence of following Jesus and what that really means to follow Jesus. And then this morning, Chris followed that up with how do we follow Jesus at work and what does that look like in our own lives, whether it be as an employee or as an employer. Um, that would relate directly to being a student even or a teacher, right, that we tend to forget that, that for students that's actually an opportunity for work for them is to be diligent in what they're doing as well and to reflect that. And so tonight we're going to look at what it really means to be a follower of Jesus at church. What does that really look like? What does it mean for us to be a follower of Jesus at church? And it's interesting because as a whole, this specific area is we, we, we see very explicit commands in Scripture regarding uh, following Jesus with as a husband, what it means to be a biblical wife, what it means to be a biblical employee or a godly employee. Um, but there's this interesting kind of uh, undertone here when it deals with ministry. There's not really something that actually lays out specifically where it's saying this is necessarily, right, ministry, except for there's a lot of things that are encompassed in it, right? We talk about pure, true and pure religion in James. We see um, things like uh, the aspect of uh, serving God and as deacons and as elders. We see different elements of our service before the Lord. But there's an assumption that our following of Christ is directly related to our service of God within the body of Christ. But these are things that we begin to follow through. And as I was looking at uh, kind of preparing for this uh, tonight, one of the things that uh, we're looking at was where do men fall within the church? Where do they actually fall in relationship to women and their service within the church? And I went everywhere. And the, the interesting thing was, was that the most recent studies have been done really about 2005. was about the most current study that did a comparison between men and women. And it was about uh, women were outpacing men in service of the church by almost 30%. So women had the bulk of the service in the church and men were behind it. And as I looked at the numbers, it was hard to actually get my mind behind numbers that were 12 years old. I thought, surely that, that can't be quite right. There's got to be something. Maybe it's gotten worse. Maybe it's gotten better. Um, and so I looked up different areas, looked at Pew Research just to see if they had done anything. And what was interesting was there was actually secular articles that the, the, the world is watching. They actually had an interest in this as well and were interested to find out who was doing the bulk of the work and try to explain some of the, the different trends that are taking place within the church. The interesting thing was, was there was a Christian group that had done research and it spoke of the fact that, um, that the gap was closing and the initial response to this was one where they were encouraged that this gap between men and women was actually closing together. And what the research actually pulled out was not that it was actually closing because more men were serving and less and, and women were staying at the same rate. It was just the fact that women were stopping their service in the church as men had reduced their role in the church and so the service on a whole was beginning to diminish and there was a gap was actually getting smaller simply because women were reducing their service. So it wasn't that men were necessarily stepping up and fulfilling this role and a lot of times I think it's because as men, we don't spend a lot of time talking about what is our role within the church. What has God called us to? 
And specifically, what has God called us to as His church? How has He called us to minister within His church? And so, the truth is, is that the sermon today is about a man's ministry, but the truth is, is that this ministry really can relate to each one of us as followers of Christ. And so we're going to be looking at Romans tonight, Romans 12. And so let's go ahead and stand together as we, we read this passage. We're going to encompass verses 1 through 13, although the focus is going to be on 3 through 13. And so <clears throat> this is what it says. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, but by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. (coughs) For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, (coughs) excuse me, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look tonight... at the ministry that you've given within your church to us as your followers. Father, may we be the ones that are being used by you. May we allow ourselves to be used by you so that you might reveal your glory through our lives, through your church. Father, may the ministry of your church move forward as we're faithful to you. And Father, tonight, may our hearts be ready to hear your word. May you push me aside. May it be you who speaks and moves. May it be your spirit who reveals your word to us and grants us understanding. And we just ask these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. If you guys mind, I'm going to put it right here. I'll forget it down here. <clears throat> so, Worshipful ministry in the body of Christ builds up one another through the humble use of our gifts in love. Worshipful ministry in the body of Christ builds up one another through the humble use of our gifts and love. At the heart of worshipful ministry is our gifts that God has granted through His Spirit being used in love. 
Today, if we think about the effectiveness of a ministry, the church is often measured by the number of ministries that they're actually able to perform. It's not the right measure, but it's often measured that way. We hear that all the time, do we not? We hear about people wanting to have the, 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 the most programs and ministries available to people. They talk about the fact that we have, you know, that there's going to be a, a need for a, a tremendous children's ministry or a tremendous youth ministry or this has a, a homeless ministry. In, in fact, sometimes there's this idea that if we can just catch people by having these numerous ministries, then we're being effective. And yet, when we look at the Scripture, when we look at what God has laid out for His church, that ministry apart from the right heart before God is just busy work. Unless the heart is right before God, it's just, it's just busyness. It's not really actually doing really anything for the kingdom of God. It's not glorifying God the way that God has intended the ministry to bring glory to His name. It's just keeping ourselves busy. I think in truth that many pastors and many leaders within churches have simply created and created and created because they felt like the need was to have more and more and more and more. And what they've moved away from has been this, the need to come at ministry with the right heart saying, Lord, what is it that you desire for us to do? Let's walk in it and be content with where you're growing us rather than trying to do it. There used to be an old saying in ministry that dealt with the idea that as leaders were coming into ministry, that specifically pastors, that there was a, a kind of a humorous prayer that, you know, God, you keep them busy and we'll keep them poor. The idea was is that they needed the work and we'll keep them busy. And the, the, the point behind that is, is that that's often, I think sometimes how as churches we can begin to evaluate success when in fact the church has been tasked with submitting itself to Christ, denying self, taking up the cross, walking and following Jesus and letting Christ be the one who grows His church through His church and the work of His church. In Romans 12, 1 it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In Greek, the phrase spiritual worship carries with it the idea of rational service. It's the idea of the way that our, our lives are lived. The word is uh, logikos, and it, it's literally a, a, a spiritual worship, but it's a, a word, it means to, to be in speech, meaning it's really an act of worship according to the word. That's what it's saying. Live your life according to to the Word. This is your spiritual act of worship. Your spiritual act of worship is to live your life according to the Word. And so when we surrender our lives completely to Christ, everything we do is an act of worship to Him. It's not just coming together and, and singing together. It's not just participating in a ministry. But it's, it is the fact that we are worshiping God by surrendering all things to Him. And so verse 3 continues, and it says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
Now, right off the get-go, Paul deals with this issue. He says, listen, I know within the church, there's a tendency within the church to create a hierarchy of gifts. To, in one way or another, think that one gift, one gift that I've given is greater than another gift that I've given. And so, this word here for sober is sophroneo, which literally means to be sensible or to be reasonable, of sound mind. And so when it says, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. What he's saying is we're to be sensible, reasonable, of sound mind. We're to see that God has created us and he's uniquely gifted each of us. But when pride's at work in our lives, when we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, we're actually not thinking right about God's grace that that should be an indicator to us that we're not thinking rightly about God's grace here. If I'm thinking that I'm more important than the next guy within the body of Christ, we're not thinking rightly about the body of Christ, but more importantly, we're not thinking about rightly about God's grace. That each of us bring a gift, and we're to think of this in relationship to God's grace. See, it's only when we embrace the truth that the work of grace in our life is not the result of anything in us, but solely the work of Christ that we will begin to lay down our pride and walk in humility. It's so important that we understand that God's salvation, Christ's salvation, through the work of the cross, is not a work of us. We didn't do anything. He went to the cross for our sin. He opened our eyes to His truth. And when we see it that way, that ought to bring humility over our life. And as long as we see that as something that we earned or deserved, that in some way we were wiser, then we're going to miss the mark of what he's laying out. As long as we see ourselves as better than or more important than somebody else within the body of Christ, we're going to miss what God has for us. And it's only with a humble heart that we will see our value and the value of others in Christ. The truth is, is it's only through humility that I'm going to value my brother and sister in Christ. It's only humility. And humility comes from seeing myself in direct relationship to Christ and His grace. What's more humbling than understanding that uh, a, a, your Savior, your God, our God, humiliated Himself for us? That He took the burden and the punishment and the pain of our sin and He went to the cross for us. There's nothing more humbling. It really is interesting to think that my sin put Jesus on the cross, is it not? My sin put Him there. My thought life put Him there. My inappropriate anger put Him there. My lust put him there. My obscene language put him there. And nothing that I could do could make me right before this holy and righteous God. Except the fact that he looks upon us with love and sends his son Jesus to die for us, to take the penalty of our sin 
overcome the power of death through the resurrection. See, when we have that perspective, we begin to see others just as valuable as ourselves. It's not based upon our gifting. I think sometimes we can feel like unless we're great teachers or great evangelists, great preachers, that the other gifts are just secondary. That what I have to offer is not as important. And what Paul's saying here is understand your gifts are just as important. David Guzik says this, he says, We should remember that spiritual giftedness does not equal spiritual maturity. Just because a person has substantial spiritual gifts does not mean they are necessarily spiritually mature or a worthy example. We have to see ourselves in the right light, that God, even though we've been gifted with different things, God has still called us to lay down our life every day. Whether I have the gift of mercy or I have the gift of service, or whether I have the gift of preaching, or whether I have the the gift of teaching, or the gift of evangelism, God still has the same requirement for each of us, which is to lay down our lives every day in the church. And so what we see here in verse 4 and 5, where he says this, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of another. Excuse me. Of one another. See, every believer is important and essential in the ministry of the body of Christ. Every believer is important and essential in the ministry of the body of Christ. If there's one thing that we grab tonight, it is that every believer, every single one of us as men, every single one of us as teenagers, Every single one of us who counts himself as a part of the body of Christ is an important and essential part of the ministry of the body of Christ. Every single one. See, each believer has a different function. One is not better than the other. We're not to attribute greater value to the other. In fact, if I say others have nothing to offer me within the fellowship of the body, I'm deceived by my self-righteous pride. Right, I mean, how many times have we heard that of, well, they don't really have anything to offer me. They really don't have anything to offer me. In fact, people leave churches over that. The church really doesn't have anything to offer me. Well, it may not if it's not holding to the truths of Scripture. But if it's holding to the truths of Scripture, and it's proclaiming God's Word, and it's walking in His truth, guess what? It has more to offer than you. And we need to encourage one another that when we're clinging and we're holding, and there's something that we feel like that when we hear those words come out of our mouth, we need to go, whoa. Is there really something wrong biblically here? Not preferentially, but biblically. And then we need to go, is there self-righteousness at work in my own heart? The other way that works itself out is if I say I have nothing to offer the ministry within the body. I'm actually deceived by a self-deprecating pride. Still pride. If I still say I have nothing to offer the body of Christ, 
it's still pride. It's still focused on me, right? Either <clears throat> I'm better or I'm worse. It's still focused on me. And God's saying, you're not better and you're not worse. You're equipped through me. And either way, we're not embracing the fullness of the gospel that God has given. See, when I hear those things come out of my mind and out of my heart, that I have nothing to offer, I need to begin to realize you're going, gosh, this is not truth at work. This is pride at work. See, pride isn't just about the machoism of being, you know, the, the guy, the who, you know, that kind of pride. What we're talking about is a pride that makes the, the focus and the idol ourselves. If I begin to believe that I'm better than others or I'm more valuable than others, that's pride at work. It's a self-righteousness. If I begin to believe in some way that I'm less than others and I'm unworthy as Christ has already made me worthy through His cross because it's His worthiness, not mine, it's self-deprecating pride. A number of years ago, meeting with a man. Wonderful guy. Nice guy. We sat down and we were talking and he always had a complaint. Always had a complaint. He really didn't know what was going on. He wanted to be a part. He was a good guy, but he always had a complaint. And so one day I challenged him. I shared with him. I said, I, I think what's at work here is that you really feel like that you know better than everybody else. It's pride at work. He sat back in his chair and he looked at me and he said, I, 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 need to, I need to go pray on that and think about that. I said, that's okay. Let's take some time. We'll get together for lunch. We got back together. We came back together for lunch a week and a half later. And he said, I've been thinking and praying. And he goes, listen, Jim. He said, I want you to know this. God's just given me gifts and abilities that he hasn't given others. And these gifts and abilities are better than others and that is why God has placed me in the positions he's placed me in. is because I have been gifted in a way, and so therefore I'm more competent, and my value is greater because I'm more competent. And he said, but I do not think it's a pride issue. And what was tragic to me was I sat there, and we sat in that room together, and I looked at him, and I said, listen the very thing that you just shared is pride at work. Because if you see yourself as more valuable than everybody else, specifically within the body of Christ, you've missed what Christ has been laying out through and through, that we have each been given a gift within the body for the building up of His body. See, when pride is at work in our life, it deceives us. Pride is a nasty thing because we all wrestle with it, right? I mean, that's what Satan wrestled with, was pride. It's what caused him to, to separate and reject and rebel against God. And when pride is at work in our life, think about that for a moment. Pride is so blinding that Satan looked in the face of God and believed that he could destroy God and turn the others against God. That's how blinding it is. Think of the power of pride in our own lives. It deceives us the same way. It's at work the same way. It doesn't allow us to see how God is fitting and knitting His body together. 
See, God's gifted you by His grace. The same grace that both saves and sanctifies. He's also given you a function within His church for the building up of His body. See, His grace truly is sufficient for you. You are an important and essential part of Christ's ongoing work in the fellowship of the believers. It's an outworking of His grace. So in verse 6, Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Now, Paul's kind of changed his tone here. He's spent the first 11 chapters of Romans saying, This is how I have saved you, or how God has saved you. And then he comes along and he says, listen, now I want you to see your spiritual service of worship. I'm going to show you how to worship you, me. I'm going to, excuse me. I'm going to show you how to worship God. And as he says that, as he brings that back together, and he says, here, now I'm going to show you how to worship God. Not only that, here's my instruction to you. And it's strong. Let us use them. But it's even stronger than that. It's let us use them. It's kind of like having a mouth problem and having a calculator sitting on the side and choosing to do it by hand repeatedly and yet this is a massive math problem and yet you have the calculator right here his point is listen use the gifts i've given you use the gifts that i've given you take it use them i'm not even really making a suggestion here i'm commanding you i'm instructing you use them i think sometimes we think about ministry within the body of christ and we treat it as an option. Well, if I get around to it and I'm not busy, I'll do it. As men, we've got a lot of things going on. As men, we're called to provide for our families, as Chris shared this morning. As men, we're to be employees and employers. As men, we're to be followers of Christ and to seek after Christ's heart regularly. We're to take up our cross daily and follow Him. And we're to use our gifts. It wasn't to be an option. And the truth is, is that I think for many of us at times, the busyness of life makes our service an option. It actually moves away from God's plan, which is that we might serve Him first. The other things in our life actually get more importance than service to His church. The reality is, is that that demands time. It demands energy. It demands prayer. And we look at it and go, I can't possibly do it all. And yet Christ is saying, I get it. That's why I gave you my spirit. Because He's supposed to do it in you. You're not to do it in your strength. You're to do it in my strength. It's to be the Spirit at work. If God's given you the gift and He's equipped you to do it, then step into it. We'll always find reasons for not serve Christ. We will. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And they're all good reasons, but are they the best reasons? See, just as God gave you the gift or grace of salvation and sanctification, He's given you a gift or grace to be used for the building up 
of his body. This truth is affirmed in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7, which says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11 continues, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. It's by God's will that we're given those gifts. We need to not chase after other gifts. We need to be content with the gifts that God has given us and serve in those areas of gifting. We need to serve in the areas that God has gifted us in. So there's two keys here to worshipful ministry. And verse 6 is at the heart of it. It says, let us use them. The first key is using our spiritual gifts. Or if you want to put in there, your spiritual grace. That's what they are. It's a spiritual grace. A grace used for His purpose. A gift used for His purpose. Now it's important to understand that He doesn't lay out an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts here. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 that there are other spiritual gifts that are not mentioned in this passage. However, in this passage, Paul is dealing with something a little bit differently. And it actually specifically deals with the entire context of Romans. In Romans 1 through 11, where he's sharing the the redemptive story of Christ. And so when he gets to these gifts, he's dealing specifically with gifts which deal with the ministry of God's Word and the work within the body of Christ. So look at, look at those gifts just for a moment. The first gift that we see here <clears throat> is the one of prophecy. It's declaring God's will in truth. Declaring God's will in truth. Now, prophecy, which Paul is speaking about, is not a prediction of future events. It's not talking about that. But it is a declaring of God's truth to restore and build up His body. It's not foretelling of the future, but it's foretelling of His heart and mind. See, the person with the spiritual gift of prophecy focuses on the applying of God's truth so that it can expose sin, it can reveal the truth, And then it can bring fellowship with God restored through the work of God's grace. It's a calling, a calling upon others to respond to the gospel work of Christ as the Lord's will is declared. Keith Carell puts it this way. He says, prophecy is a declaration of God's will to God's people. It's a, a process of for our edification and for our encouragement and does not necessarily exclude teaching and doctrine. It's a calling. It's a a calling to. It's a calling to account. It's a recognition where there needs to be a turning. It's a a calling forth of repentance uh, of our sin and a belief on Christ. It's a turning from, a, a need to move forward, to seek after the will of God, which is found in the Word of God. The word there is different. There's a word for preaching and a word of prophecy. The word for prophecy is propheteo. The word for preaching is angelion, angelion. and the, the word there, there are two different words. One is a, a proclaiming 
of God's truth. The other is a declaring of God's will in truth. First Corinthians 14 3 says, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. We're to bring, to share, to call to account what God has laid upon our heart according to His Word. The idea here is that I may share the truth with Darren. I may see Darren as needing Christ and I call him to account. It's not the preaching of God's Word. It is the calling to account towards Christ, the the message of Christ and looking at Darren and saying, you need Jesus too. It's that if Tim is a believer, it's leading him towards the will of God. That the, the will of God is that he might need to lead his wife in Christ. It is the fact that I we call one another to that. It's declaring the will of God in truth. R.C. Sproul adds this. He says, The prophecy of which Paul speaks is not to be confused with the predicting of future events but rather that which a person had received from God for instruction, exhortation, or comfort. Those who considered themselves recipients of this gift were always to confirm their message to the objective standard of faith once delivered and were to be judged by their conformity to that standard of faith. In no instance should their prophesying contradict the objective revelation of the Scriptures. Right? It's a calling to. It's not outside Scriptures. It's confirmed by Scripture. We're told not to despise that prophecy. But it's the first spiritual gift that he's mentioned there. The second one that he mentions here is service. It's mentioned in verse 7. It says, if service in our serving. And service is meeting the individual and corporate practical needs within the body of Christ. It's an instruction to care for the needs which may arise within the fellowship of believers and for the gathering as a whole. And so this service may be in the corporate gathering, or the service may be one to another, serving the body of Christ. When I was growing up, I grew up in a pastor's household. My dad pastored, my dad pastored for 18 years. My grandfather was a pastor as well, not his dad, but my mom's dad. And he pastored by the time he passed away for 48 years. Let me tell you, ministry was not my first choice. I had seen it. I didn't want it. And the truth was was that my dad fell in ministry. He committed adultery, and he left our family when I was 13 years old. And my idea of the church in that moment was more of a, basically a, just a, hypocritical gathering of people. That if he could do it, that must be true of everyone else. So you know, God had a sovereign plan in that. And that sovereign plan involved a group of men who saw the need to serve the body of Christ. More importantly, they saw the need to serve me, a 13-year-old guy who looked out, that was hurting, that was skeptical of the church. 
I had eight men in my life, eight, that came around me. Now, each one served a different role. One was my uncle and my grandfather. They were men that stepped in as my dad. Every ball game that my uncle took my cousins to, I went with them. I was invited in as a part of the family. Held close. I had men in the church. My junior prom night, I'm in Oakland, in downtown Oakland, down on MacArthur at midnight. I'm in a car. I've got my date. We're downtown. Car breaks. I have no idea what to do. Who was it? It was a man in our church. I called my mom. I said, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to get AAA out here. I'm stuck, and it's not a good neighborhood. Literally 20 minutes later, here comes this guy, Mike Crimmins is his name, driving on in. Here's my car. You get to prom. We had only an hour left because it got over at one. You take my car. I'll get your car running, and I'll take it back home. We'll deal with all this stuff tomorrow. Another man. His name was Jerry Sarton. 16 years old, different car, because that car broke down. It was my mom's car. I went to go look for a car. Now it's time to get a car. Happened to be talking in a circle of guys, some friends. We were having a good, nice conversation. Out circled around, talking tough as high school guys do. Yeah, I'm looking for this. I have no idea what goes on inside of a car. Like, I am probably the most unmechanical guy on a car in the world. I can change oil. That's it. I can change a tire. But you ask me the working parts of a car, I have no clue. Yeah, I'm going to go look for this car. Listening, we get done. That's Sunday afternoon. Still remember it. Get a phone call. Hey, uh, Tim, this is Jerry Sarton. Yeah? I'm thinking, is there something wrong? Did I get in trouble? What is it? Hey, I overheard a conversation you were having with some of your friends earlier today. What do you know about cars? Nothing. Nothing. Good. Because I'm going to go buy a car with you. For five months, we looked for a car. Together. He would not let me go buy a car without having him look at it with me. We'd sit in his living room for hours, going through the Bay Area traders, looking at cars, circling cars, going to dealers, walking through, because... He cared enough to go, you know what? This is the gift that God has given me. These are the skills that God has given me. And you know what? I'm going to use them to serve you. And I have a heart to serve. God has given me the gift of service. That same guy went to one of our deacons in the church. We owned an auto shop. After five minutes of looking, we went to the auto shop. Jerry came and he said, Tim, I found a car for you. It runs, it works, it'll get you to point A to point B. It's reliable, it's trustworthy, but it's not hot looking. He said, I need you to make a choice. It's time for you to make a decision as a man of what you need versus what you want. Powerful words to a 16-year-old kid. He said, you know what? If I were your age, I wouldn't want the car that I'm going to show you. But he said, let me tell you, it'll be the best decision you ever made. I went, looked at the car, went and said, yeah, no. 
I'm not doing that. That this auto shop, it was a shop car, and it had everything rebuilt on it, everything. It was a 1984 Honda Accord. It had been beaten up. It had ice cream stains all over the interior from whoever owned it before. It was not a good-looking car. Paint job was all oxidized and whatever, but the car ran perfect. So this guy, Joe, came to me and he said, listen, since this is our shop car, I'll guarantee all the work. I'll do all the work that will ever need on this car. You buy it, I'll do the work. I went away for a week. I said, I'll get back to you. And I tried to extend that out as long as I possibly could to find something else. Right? Guess what? Almost. That car went 250,000 miles. 250,000 miles. These men cared for me. Why do I mention their names? Because they mattered. They were men that served the body of Christ that weren't allowed one person to walk away. They took this kid that was skeptical about who Jesus was and they used their gifts to show me the love of Christ so that at 17, 18, when God began getting a hold of my life, it changed me. This is what the love of the body of Christ does. This is the power that we have through Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit that God brings into His body. It's through our service that Christ changes lives. Funny story. I hadn't seen Joe in 25 years, 24 years. Joe still owned this shop. I guess I hadn't seen him in about 20 years, because it was about four years ago. My wife and our family are driving to Sonora on vacation. No joke. The very first exit in Castor Valley, as we're passing through, the engine shuts off on our van. I mean, shuts off. No idea why. I go coasting down the hill, off, get off the off-ramp, park at the bottom. Where do I go? I'm two blocks away from Joe's shop. No joke. This man, 20 years later, took care of me. Called him, got the van to his shop. I was expecting the bill. They had to change motor mounts on the motor, everything. Gets done, and he's about a $3,000 job. He looks, and he goes, guess what, Tim? We had a lot of fun doing this. We learned a lot. How about 500 bucks? Will that prank your bake? Listen, the body of Christ is essential. Your role within the body is essential. And you're important. Don't just think that the preaching and teaching ministry is all there is and that without that, that you're not important. You are. Now, it's important to look at verse 6 and 7 here because this idea of prophesying in service, notice what it says. Is It says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if prophecy, or excuse me, if service in our serving, there's a plural sense here. And he says that, then he goes on and he says, the one who teaches, the one who exhorts, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who leads, the one who does acts of mercy. Now the reason he does that 
is that Paul is pointing out that each of us, whether mature in Christ or immature in Christ, whether gifted or not, we are all called to proclaim the truth. We're all called to declare the truth, the will of God in truth to one another and to serve one another, each one of us. He moves from the plural to the singular. And that plural is a call. He's saying to us, guess what? I want you to know that even if you're not necessarily gifted in this, guess what? You have been gifted through your grace, through God's grace and work in your life to declare God's will and truth. And you have been gifted to serve. Every single one of us is called still to declare God's truth. My call still is to share and declare who Jesus is. My call is still to serve, even if that is not the specific spiritual gift that I have been given. Each one of us have that purpose. And Paul is reminding them of that. He's saying, listen, this is your spiritual act of worship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer affirms this when he says, where Christians live together, the time must inevitably come when in some crisis one person will have to declare God's word and will to another. It is inconceivable that the things that are of utmost importance to each individual should not be spoken by one to another. It is unchristian consciously to deprive one another of the one decisive service we can render to him. He continues, Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than to, sever, to, to severely rebuke and call a brother back from the path of sin. Ultimately, we have no charge but to serve our brother, never to set ourselves above him, and we serve him even when we must speak the judging and dividing word of God to him. I love that. We have to speak the judging and dividing word of God as we're walking in service. We get into these next few gifts, and we'll move through this fairly quickly. The next one is the teaching of God's word. This is the one who teaches in his teaching. Revealing the truth about God and our response to Him. And then he goes on and he says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. We're to be encouraging one another in truth. We're to help us walk in the revelation of God's Word. When we're encouraged, it helps us walk, right? I mean, we have opportunities to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to walk in the revelation of God's Word. When God reveals His truth, we're to walk in it. And there, there are those that are gifted at encouraging people to walk in that truth. And sometimes that encouragement doesn't always initially feel like encouragement. Right? It needs to be pushed and nudged. We need those people in our life. Do we have those people in our life who will actually exhort His Word to us? Giving. The one who contributes in generosity. Some of you might have the gift of giving. The next one is leading. It says in verse 8, the one who leads with zeal. Well, the spiritual gift of leadership is one that we are to do with diligence and zeal. The idea here is we're to persevere. And it deals with the inward desire of the heart and the outward manifestation of the heart. That if we lead, we're to be doing it with the same intensity inwardly as we are doing it outwardly. Some have the spiritual gift of leadership. Are you using it? Are you using that gift of leadership that God has given you? We're all called to lead. We're called to lead in our homes. 
Has God given you the spiritual gift of leadership and are you using it within the ministry of the church? Now remember, the issue is that the gifting doesn't equate spiritual maturity. So as a part of all of these gifts, God is calling me first to lay down my life, to deny myself and take up my cross daily and follow Him. That's where it begins. And then I begin to use these gifts. The next gift in verse 8, it says, the one who adds acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the idea of feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, providing shelter for the homeless. Are you using those gifts? So for some of us, we may say, how do we know our spiritual gifts? Well, one of the reasons that we come together, that we fellowship together, is that it's often within the body of Christ that we then begin to see our spiritual gifts at work. And it's also within the body of Christ that we see our spiritual gifts affirmed. One of the hard things is we've created things that can be helpful tools like spiritual gifts inventories. But the truth is, is that when we look at Scripture and we see the gifts being identified, it's actually through the fellowship and group body of believers. It's the fact that how does somebody know that they have a specific gifting in one area? All of a sudden it begins being affirmed by others within the body of Christ. This is one of the dangers of kind of being alone and not being together as a body. It is One, we aren't known, but then we also aren't then speaking and affirming and encouraging others in the gifted areas that we see. If I see Caleb has a gift in a specific area, I need to be able to encourage him in that gift. I need to not stand by and, and go, gosh, I sure hope he takes a spiritual gift inventory so he knows his spiritual gift over here is in leading. Right? It's one of the reasons it's so important to be within the body of Christ. Even the apostles had their, their gifts, right? Paul and Barnabas, they had hands laid upon them. They were sent out. There was an affirmation of them. But there was also an affirmation of the gifting. Part of being in the body of Christ is to affirm one of those gifts. And the best way to do that is to be within the body, within the fellowship. So your spiritual gifts will be affirmed in the body of Christ. That's why it's so important to be serving ministering within the body of Christ. The second thing then, the first is to use our spiritual gifts, the two keys to worshipful ministry. And the second we see in verses 9 through 13. And it's ministering in love without hypocrisy. It's ministering in love without hypocrisy. It says, let love be genuine. The idea here is to not be hypocritical. See, it's easy to serve a lot of the times, is it not? Where we're just doing it out of a sense of duty. Look, we don't even want to be here, right? Been there. I don't know if you guys have done that. I certainly have. Like, I need to really check my attitude because the reality is I don't really want to be here right now. And frankly, the more I'm serving, the more I'm frustrated I'm getting. Right? We need to, to minister in love without hypocrisy. So what does genuine love look like here? Well, it says in verse 9, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. We're to have a genuine love for God. A genuine love for God. Worshipful ministry is coming from our love from God and our love for God. That's where it's coming from. It's not coming from just this great sense of work ethic, but it's coming from our love for God. The second thing then is it's coming from, in verse 10 it says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Genuine love for others. We're to have a genuine love for others. 
So the first is a love for God. The second is a love for others. And the third here, it says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're to have a genuine love for being a servant of Christ. See, when we love and minister in love without hypocrisy, it's done with a genuine love for God, for others, and for being a servant of Christ. Notice what he says there. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Do you see yourself that in a tribulation that God is actually using you in the midst of a trial, he's using you as a servant? I wonder how often as men, and I know in my own life, that trials can come and it's, all you want to do is get through them. You just want to get to the other side. You just want to get out of them. Right? Make the pain, the uncomfortableness go away. But what he wants us to see is that even in the midst of that trial, we're to love being his servant. That that trial is actually an opportunity for God to reveal himself within his church. That in the midst of all of this, that we are to be patient in tribulation. I wonder, men, I don't know if you guys are like me, but usually the first thing that goes when I'm tired, frustrated, is my patience in trial. I think of my kids. You could ask Trent right now, and he'd tell you that, yeah, Dad comes home, and there's nights where he's tired, and he's frustrated, and he comes home, and there's no patience in trial, right? You kick that one toy in the room, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, seriously. Like, that should have been put away, right? The point there is that we're to be patient in trial, in all trials, whatever that is. If that's going through a physical ailment, if that's going through just... Um, frustration, it's whatever it may be. And then he goes on and says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're to be people that show hospitality. This is an instruction for all believers here. Do we actually desire to show hospitality towards one another? And do we see as men that God has called us to be hospitable? that God has called you and I to be a people who are hospitable towards others. The truth is, is that a genuine love for being a servant of Christ will allow me to show hospitality regularly towards others. Look in your ministries. What a simple statement, and I liked it. It's at the bottom of your notes. It says, Jesus was certainly not timid, nor was he naive or foolish. Instead, he willingly went to the cross because his strength of purpose and love for his Father moved him to accomplish that for which he was sent. And Jesus is the ultimate man, the second Adam who fully exhibits all that God wants men to be. Men find true manhood only in serving the Savior. men, God has called us to a worshipful ministry within His church. 
And that worshipful ministry is demonstrated through the humble use of our gifts. John MacArthur summed up the heart of this passage, a passage which is exhorting and challenging the Romans, the Roman believers, to surrender and lay down their lives for Christ and to be a living sacrifice. This is what MacArthur said. He said, I know there are people in this church who believe they're committed to the Lord, but if you look at their life and try to see where that actually comes out into service, it just isn't there. And if we do nothing else but eliminate that illusion that you can be committed to Christ with no basic ministry, with no basic service, with no passion for using the gift God's given you, then we've done no service to you at all. People say, well, I realize that I'm really dedicated to the Lord, but right now I'm busy with my job. I'm busy working. I'm busy shopping. I'm busy hobbying. I'm busy recreating. I'm busy vacationing. I'm busy resting or whatever. And there's a time for all that. But the truth is that dedication works out in service. And that's what Paul's saying. God has called us as believers, men specifically here, but men and women at this church, to minister worshipfully through the humble use of our gifts. Is God calling you to use your gifts? And what call is he giving you? Where is he desiring you to serve? The truth is, is that as we respond to God, because his gift is a grace, we need to also respond in the same way, of laying our lives down for him, even in our service to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can worship you. Thank you for the fact that our salvation has been paved through through your son Jesus. I thank you for the gift that you've given, the grace that you've given of these gifts. And I thank you that you've allowed us to serve within your body of Christ. May we as men serve you humbly with the gifts that you've given us. And may we walk in the boldness and the power of your spirit. And we ask this in your name. Tim, um, we're going to conclude tonight with another song. And-